From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And on today's show, we're sharing some dog stories, as you're about to hear from writers Allison Smith, Manuela Holterhoff, and Joseph Goodrich. Lucky was about two years old when she came to us. She shat in the house and ran away at least once a month. Muggsy's prospects had seemed quite poor. The unbelievably sad picture of her on PetFinder.com showed a swayback dog seductively described as senior and obese. A dog teaches a boy fidelity, perseverance, and to turn around three times before lying down. And on today's Between the Lines segment, Haley Stoddard shares her thoughts about her own writing process. For me, writing is both the angel on one shoulder telling you that you've got to get something out today, and the devil on the other insisting that you can't and you'd be a fool to try. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Dogs amuse us, they comfort us, and they work for us, herding sheep, pulling sleds, sniffing for bombs or drugs, and alerting us to visitors or deliveries. They've been our companions and our co-workers for thousands of years, and dogs and humans share a unique bond of friendship and love. And science has recently established that dogs really do love us, and not only because we feed them. We begin today's show with Allison Smith. Before Allison sold her first book, she worked as a dishwasher, receptionist, newspaper reporter, waitress, and English tutor. Now, Allison teaches in the MFA program at Goddard College and lectures at universities and high schools throughout the country. And her writing has appeared in McSweeney's, Granta, The London Telegraph, The New York Times, Glamour, and elsewhere. Recorded live at Nancy Manicharian's The Cell on West 23rd Street in New York City, here's Allison Smith reading Lucky. Lucky was about two years old when she came to us. She shat in the house and ran away at least once a month. She never learned to tolerate a leash. Mother tried to discipline her in the way, as a child, she had been taught to handle a dog. She hit Lucky on the muzzle with a rolled-up newspaper, and she rubbed her nose in shit. About a year in, when it was abundantly clear that Lucky was making no progress with the leash, Mother bought a choke collar. The collar was made from linked metal squares with sharp prongs on the inside. As soon as Mother slipped it over her head and fastened it to the leash, Lucky dashed forward. Mother yanked back on the leash, saying, Heel! The prongs dug into her neck, and Lucky howled. The pain or the surprise of it, I don't know which was worse. Then my mother handed me the leash. Now you do it. No, I said, I can't, I can't. She told me I'd have to, that if I wanted to keep the dog, I'd learn how to use the collar. So Lucky lunged forward again, and I gave the leash a gentle tug. Heel, I pleaded. Harder, Mother said. No, harder. She took the leash back, like this. 
I never did learn how to use the choke collar. And within a week, Lucky barely registered those prongs on her throat. Once again, she was leaning against the chain with all her weight, pulling me toward the wild gully at the end of our street. And I ran behind her, yanking on the leash, yelling, heel, at the top of my voice. Then one day, Mrs. Boxer came out onto her porch, her wide figure shadowed under the ivy that grew around her door. And she called down to me, how dare you treat a dog like that? Mrs. Boxer was a widow, one of three on our street whose husbands had died years before. The widows didn't own cars, and their yard work was neglected. They kept cats, never dogs. You ought to be ashamed, Mrs. Boxer said. And then Lucky saw her moment. She knew I was distracted by Mrs. Boxer, and she pulled with all her strength. The force of it surprised me. I fell forward, scraping my knees, lost my grip, and she was halfway to the gully before it even occurred to her to turn around. I sat on the pavement, holding my skinned knees, calling her name, tears on my face. Lucky cocked her head. The sharp triangle of her ears perked up with curiosity. She had certainly seen me cry any number of times before, but never like this, never with such despair, and never at something she had done. After a long moment, her ears flattened against her head, and she walked slowly back up the street and stood next to me, waiting. I picked up the leash, and I sat with Lucky in the middle of the road, my arms around her neck, thinking about what to do next. If I stood up, Lucky would be off to the races once again. If I pulled on the choke, Mrs. Boxer would step off her porch and start moving towards us. And then I had another idea. I squatted, and pulled Lucky between my legs, wrapped my arms around her, drew her up, and I stood up. Lucky, as long as me, from her nose to the tip of her tail, lay passive in my arms. I wobbled a little. My arms burned from the strain, but I carried that dog all the way to the end of the block, over one street, and up the next, only setting her down, one house away from ours. From then on, I walked Lucky every day. As Mother watched us through the dining room window, we turned right out of our driveway, and I stumbled behind Lucky, calling, Heel! Heel! And then just before Mrs. Boxer's house, I would sit down on the road. Lucky would come and stand next to me, and I gathered her to me, picked her up, and we toured the neighborhood, Lucky and I, the dog in my arms, a look of implacable dignity on her face. Allison Smith's first book, a memoir titled Name All the Animals, was published by Scribner, and it was named one of the top 10 books of the year by People Magazine and published in seven foreign countries. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, and Northampton, Massachusetts with a partner and her two dogs.
Manuela Holterhoff is a commentator and editor whose topics have ranged widely over the contemporary world to include opera and theater, art and architecture, literature and travel, and how animals affect our lives. At the Wall Street Journal for 20 years, she wrote reviews and served as arts editor, books editor, and member of the editorial board. Here's Manuela Holterhoff, recorded on stage at the cell in New York City, reading Muggsy. Mystery surrounded Muggsy from the day she arrived on the Upper West Side, tumbling out of a van dispatched by a sweet woman at a Brooklyn kill shelter. After my friend Sheila and I got hopelessly lost trying to pick her up on an evening so stormy, I wrote a poem about it. It went like this. Stormy was our way, no beacon lit the LIE, where mysteriously we ended our journey at JFK. As some of you will know, JFK is not in Brooklyn. Uh, nothing was known about Muggsy except that a young guy had dropped her off at the shelter saying his grandmother had died and no one wanted her. By contrast, the life of Muggsy's predecessor, the sainted sugar, was well documented since she had worked as a sniffer in the Beagle Brigade of the Department of Agriculture at Kennedy Airport. She even had a little coat. Sugar's job was to separate illicitly imported meat products from tourists who feared this country might not provide the perfect pepperoni. Sniffer dogs are trained to sit down in front of a suspicious suitcase. The handler rewards them with a treat. After a sterling start, Sugar began sitting down in front of every suitcase. Uh, rendered useless by her greed, her employment came to an end, but the world became her oyster. We traveled widely, and she became known for her nocturnal escapades. In Santa Fe, her heedless destructiveness wreaked on interfering curtains and windows in San Francisco and general guile, stealing anything off the plates of divas as they sat on various couches and reminisced about the past, as divas tend to do. <laughs> um, oblivious to her lack of interest in anything not food-related. Muggsy's prospects had seemed quite poor. The unbelievably sad picture of her on PetFinder.com showed a sway-back dog seductively described as senior and obese. <laughs> Believed to be 10, she remained about that age, looking younger as her health improved. She immediately took to the sugar memorial bed by the fireplace. Inspired by her soulful, searching eyes, we made up biographies for Muggsy. That name and those huge front paws with crooked nails suggested a home without much of a lawn, maybe a concrete patio in the back. I couldn't help noticing <clears throat> that she always did her business on the flagstone at my house in the country, never mind the acres of greenery available. Unlike my other beagles, Muggsy loved fruits, vegetables, fish, even caviar on very special occasions. <clears throat> Perhaps an ancient Russian princess living in a draped apartment in Brighton Beach or a local Odessa not far from the shelter had fed her scraps like scrumptious beets until the old lady joined the Romanovs. <laughs> Muggsy, Muggsy was not a cuddler. Muggsy hated being picked up. 
approach her and she would instantly roll on her back and show her belly <laughs> while producing anguish shrieks. Maybe a defense mechanism, we thought, from Sunday afternoon when the Ruski princess's grandchildren came to visit. Muggsy was friendly without being effusive and would trot over to favorite visitors like Miss Reller, provider of specially concocted frozen pupcakes. Had she ever had pups? The only maternal instincts she revealed were for Minnie, another rescued beagle, who was possibly her age and got her face licked every morning. When Hamlet the micropig arrived, Hamlet the micropig, <laughs> Muggsy allowed her to share her bed, but looked the other way as dogs do to make annoying creatures disappear, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and hopefully dead soon. And 2008, we were both diagnosed with cancer. Her surgery cost more and wasn't covered. I laughed about that, but worried her days were numbered. Instead, we shared three more happy years. Muggsy was lying on her favorite suede bed as we chewed our last salami sandwich. We were listening to Schubert's Winterize It when she died. It seemed appropriate. Those songs are about journeys through Germany in the early 20th, uh, 19th century, and in a larger sense, through a wintry world in which the narrator finds no shelter at sundown. There are 24 songs, starting with Gute Nacht, Good Night, and its hypnotic opening lines. I was a stranger when I arrived and a stranger when I left. So sings the narrator as he quietly closes the door on a doomed love affair and leaves with the moonlight as his companion. Winterreise has several references to dogs who growl at the wanderer, the lonely outsider. My Muggsy never growled at anybody. There was always the possibility of a treat. Thank you. Manuela Holterhoff won the annual Pulitzer Prize for Criticism for her work with the Wall Street Journal, citing her wide-ranging criticism on the arts and other subjects. Most recently, she served as an executive editor and columnist for Bloomberg News. She lives and writes in the Hudson Valley. Joseph Goodrich was born and raised in Minnesota. He has lived on both coasts and says he prefers the East one. He's worked extensively in the theater as an actor and playwright, and his plays have been produced in New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and elsewhere. Here's Joseph Goodrich, recorded at Nancy Manicharian's The Cell in Manhattan, reading The New Boy. December 1970, a small town in Minnesota. The snow's piled high, the temperature's low, Dusk falls early on Main Street. Shoppers bustle in and out of Silverberg's department store, Habick's haberdashery, Woolworth's, Ben Franklin, and Gordon's Rexall drugs. Rexall, like my grandfather used to sing. I do my shopping at a Rexall store. What they want, I got, and furthermore, Jimmy Durante, he prefers it too. We buy Rexall, that's all. How do you do? <laughs> December 1970, spirits are high, hearts are light, toes are frozen, everyone's looking forward to Christmas. Everyone but me. 
I'm seven years old, and given the season, I should be ecstatic, but I'm not. I'm worried. I'm deeply worried. <laughs> I'm going to be replaced. How do I know this? It's very simple. I've been told as much. One day, my Aunt Shirley said, a new boy is coming to live with us on Christmas. <laughs> That's all she said. No further explanation was forthcoming. None was needed. I was a good Christian lad, and I didn't question the fact that I must have done something wrong. As Christmas loomed ever nearer, I was consumed by a series of powerful secret questions. Why was I, the only boy in the house, no longer sufficient? What was my sin? What rule, what law had I inadvertently broken? It had to be inadvertent, for I was a good boy, or I tried to be. Sensitive and shy, afraid of hurting and of getting hurt, there was no harm in me. Or was there? I was treading on dangerous ground. My mother had died in April after a long bout with cancer of the bone marrow. Was I being punished for her death? It was a terrible thought, quickly replaced by one even more terrifying. Was I somehow responsible for her death? Is this why I'm being replaced? It was too much for one mind to hold. I had to put such thoughts aside. I forced them down into the dark place where, months before, I'd placed my mother's death. I could drive away dark thoughts, but I couldn't stop the calendar. Christmas Day arrived, and so did my rival. <laughs> About 10 in the morning, a car turned onto McMillan Street and rolled up the driveway to the back door of our house. My grandfather and Aunt Shirley left the paper and present-strewn living room to meet our visitor. I waited, sick with tension, sick with worry. Would I like the new boy? Would he like me? Would I get to stay? The porch door opened. And what bounded up the stairs, through the kitchen, nails clattering on the hardwood floor, but an 11-month-old fox terrier. <laughs> the rest of the day was chaos and noise, running and barking, barking and running, running and running and barking and barking and running and barking and running. <sighs> and relief. Blessed relief. We had Pete, that's what we named him, Pete, for 10 years. He grew up with me. He became a part of the family. When I was at school, he'd spend the day with Aunt Shirley. Shirley was a retired rodeo girl, a former trick rider and trick roper. The saddle was in the garage. The ropes were coiled and stored in the attic, but she still had the urge to perform, and Pete became her audience. Shirley would sit on the edge of the bed, strum her Sears and Roebuck auto harp, and serenade Pete with cowboy songs. <laughs> Come along, boys, I'll tell you all a tale, all about my troubles on the old Chisholm Trail. Come a kai kai yippee, kai kai yippee, kai kai yippee yippee yay, yippee yay. Kai kai yippee yippee yay. Shirley never had a better audience. As for me, I remember Pete, the new boy, with fondness. And I often think of something Robert Benchley once said. 
He said, a dog teaches a boy fidelity, perseverance, and to turn around three times before lying down. <laughs> Thank you. Joseph Goodrich is the author of several published works, and like William Butler Yeats, Joe loves what vanishes, from theater to ocean liners to typewriters. He lives in New York City. Read 650 is a nonprofit literary organization with a mission to promote writers with this forum for true personal stories told five minutes and 650 words at a time. We feature writers reading original work aloud, short personal essays that all relate to a single topic with an emphasis on craft. It's about the choice of one word over another, the shape of sentences and paragraphs, the arc of a narrative, and the poetry of a unique literary voice. If you love language and a craft and enjoy a good story, You've come to the right place, and we're glad you're listening. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Meyer, Karen Duquesse, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and our show was produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from Nancy Manicharian's The Cell in New York City. Dedicated to the incubation and presentation of new works by emerging artists, The Cell has produced over a dozen critically acclaimed world premieres of new plays and musicals and serves as a home base for a large community of resident artists and organizations, such as Blackboard Reading Series, Artists Without Walls, and Tribeca New Music. View details and performance schedules at thecelltheater.org. Haley Stoddard is a California native who is currently pursuing her bachelor's degree in Colorado. She began writing poetry at a young age and has been influenced by such writers as Billy Collins, Emily Dickinson, Anne Lamott, Leonard Cohen, and Mary Oliver. For today's Between the Lines segment, Haley describes her process of getting words onto the page. For me, writing is both the angel on one shoulder telling you that you've got to get something out today, and the devil on the other, insisting that you can't, and you'd be a fool to try. If you somehow manage past both of these voices and get something down on paper, then comes the red pen of the inner critic, saying that nothing you've got down is worth keeping. Writing is both the muse and the villain. Perhaps at our best... Writers are simply puppies chasing our tails, living for the intrigue, the possibility, the briefest chance of success. Even if you're lucky enough to catch it a few times, that tail is always still there, tempting you, or perhaps taunting you. Writing doesn't have an end, and so you can't ever truly know you've arrived. Even if you are published, you'll always ask yourself what comes next. As Paul Valery once said, a poem is never finished, only abandoned. My first drafts are always written in cheap, unimpressive, unassuming spiral notebooks. I've been gifted beautiful notebooks over the years, 
but the thought of writing in them fills me with anxiety. They seem to invite only work that is Shakespearean, grand, philosophic in nature, and written in calligraphy. I buy the 99-cent ones from the grocery store, because I know they'll be destroyed. They end up covered with scratches and black blotches, the angel and the devil battling it out on the page, as I try and simultaneously chase some elusive muse in the middle of their battlefield. By the time I'm finished with an entire notebook, it's usually in tatters, the cover and spine bent and ripped to pieces. It's been thrown across the room, stuffed in purses, dropped in parking lots, cried on, slept with, clawed at. Writing is inherently a violent business. But after going in so many violent, pointless circles, sometimes I find something that sticks, something that echoes, something that other human hearts can hear. That's the magic I'm looking for. When the words come out right, and another person reads it and feels a connection. There's a brief moment when we feel collectively less alone. And that moment is worth all the trouble. Haley Stoddard's work has appeared in Winged Nation and Parley. Several of her poems will be published in the upcoming issues of Oberon, After the Pause, and Beyond Words. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show where writers of all genres contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you'll find open submission calls for other upcoming shows. That wraps things up for today. Thanks again to writers Allison Smith, Manuela Holterhoff, Joseph Goodrich, and Haley Stoddard. For more Read 650, you can view hundreds of original performances on our YouTube channel and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or at read650.org. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.